Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Cyril Ghosh, your host. As you know, in this series, we pick new books in political science and we interview the authors. Today's interview is with Tamara Metz, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Reed College. And we're talking about her recent book, Untying the Knot, Marriage, the State, and the Case for Their Divorce published by Princeton University Press in 2010. In recent months, marriage has once again become a controversial subject in American politics. President Obama has stated explicitly that he is in favor of civil unions for same-sex couples, but not marriage, although recent media reports claim that his views on this are currently evolving. In a strange twist, earlier this year, the Justice Department announced that it would no longer defend the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA. Meanwhile, a few weeks ago, New York became the largest state to allow same-sex marriage, joining five other states, the District of Columbia, and two American Indian tribes in Oregon. Recently, the Senate Judiciary Committee is also starting to consider a bill that would grant federal benefits to same-sex married couples. And even as all these developments unfold, organizations like Immigration Equality are advocating for equal rights for both spouses as well as permanent partners regardless of their nationality. But to what extent should the state be involved in either regulating or recognizing marriage? Tamara Metz argues in this book that the state should not be involved in this at all. She says marriage should be disestablished from the state and privatized. Like religion, she says, the state and marriage should be separate. She further claims that the liberal state should only be in the business of legally recognizing a wide variety of intimate caregiving unions among consenting, able-minded, able-bodied adults. In this interview, she clarifies her positions further. Here is Tamara Metz. Hi, Tamara. Uh, welcome, Hi. To, welcome to New Books in Political Science. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I just want to start by saying um, that I really, really enjoyed reading this book. It's a controversial, uh, well, let's say, topic. And mm. your position on marriage is, how shall I say this, uh, somewhat radical. I, mm-hmm. I, I have many questions, and I'm greatly looking forward to, to our talk today. Mm-hmm. Let me, Great. Right. Uh, let, let, me start, let me start by asking you to uh, briefly introduce to our listeners um, the central argument of the book. You talk of, you talk of the disestablishment of marriage. What, what do you mean by this? Okay, so I, I would say that there are two uh, arguments in terms of Two, two conclusions, really. Um, the first is that um, on the basis of um, roughly and loosely speaking liberal principles, um, that marriage should be disestablished. And what I mean by that is that um, 
well, I guess that requires some explanation of what I mean by a, the, the claim that marriage is established. And what I mean by that is roughly um, that the state uh, recognizes and regulates um, a particular institution, a particular variety of marriage, and it privileges um, that institution over other um, arrangements of intimate caregiving, um, and it does so actively. And it does so both through material and social means. Um, and so my argument is that that, uh, that arrangement conflicts with uh, our commitment to a liberal commitment to freedom and equality and uh, and a kind of well, liber to, to to freedom and equality and a kind of um, stability or support of um, intimate caregiving, which is an argument I make later in the book or later, mm -hmm. um, which is actually the second argument, which is that the state though the state should get out of the business of recognizing and regulating marriage as such. So the claim is that um, we should essentially abolish marriage as a legal category. Um, but that doesn't mean that the state should stop recognizing and supporting um, intimate caregiving units of a wide variety um, because I think there are good liberal arguments for the state to be involved in that work. And the reason has to do roughly with the short version is that intimate caregiving is both necessary and risky. Um, and in I think the ways in which intimate caregiving is um, necessary are probably obvious. The best example is, and what I mean by intimate caregiving is care that is um, between or among intimates that's unmonitored, unpredictable, unremunerated. Um, and the paradigmatic example would be the kind of care that a parent gives a child, but right. it also happens among um, intimates. So that, is, or be, between able-minded, able-bodied adults in an intimate relationship, that kind of care is necessary for human beings to flourish um, to survive and to flourish, um, although you could argue that human beings could survive without that kind of care. Um, my argument is that we can't flourish without that kind of care. That's a valuable kind of care, but it's risky for whoever is in, um, for the caregiver. And of course, um, even in a relationship between two able-bodied, able-minded adults, where there's gonna be an ex sort of, ideally there would be an exchange of this kind of work, um, it's always a kind of labor that, um, at least in the immediate sense, reduces one's resources um, because you're giving resources to an, to another person's right. survival or thriving. And so it puts, in a very sort of basic sense, it, it puts you at risk of, or the caregiver at risk of being left without adequate resources for their own care. Right. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, and so societies have always had some institutional mechanism for for protecting people who do that kind of work. Um, because if they didn't, then either it wouldn't get done or the people doing it would get, uh, you know, would be in 
extremely vulnerable, unfair um, situations. So all societies come up with some mechanism for protecting that, protecting people who engage in that care, um, or and um, often, quite often, it has been marriage, at least in um, the West, and um, such as it is. And um, my claim is that that's all well and good, but the liberal state shouldn't be involved in marriage. So what it should do is get rid of marriage, abolish marriage as a legal category, and um, replace it with something that I call unfortunate, an unfortunately named um, intimate caregiving union status and ICGU status. Um, and it, that would roughly be something like civil union status for anyone who qualified and opted into the status who qualified as an intimate caregiving union. What exactly um, would count as an intimate caregiving union is something that I think in a liberal democratic society we need to debate. And I have arguments about why it should include a very, very wide range right. of such units. So yeah. I, I have actually, that's the yeah, sorry. No, that's the short version if, <laughs> of the book. <laughs> right. But you see, you've introduced already in, this op in these opening lines, you already introduced various uh, things and concepts that I actually want to ask you further questions about. Intimate caregiving right. union status is one, but also you speak of liberal commitments to freedom and equality. And in a bit, like uh, later in the interview, I will ask you to speak a little bit about what precisely uh, what that means, because not all of our listeners are uh, acquainted with uh, well how we theorists use the word liberal, and uh, yeah. yeah. So, but uh, but before that, uh, m more general questions. I have more general questions for you. What, uh, the first one is, well, what 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 precisely inspired you to work on this particular topic? Like this started as a doctoral dissertation, right? At Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think as many projects that people work on, it was um, partly just a, a sort of intellectual interest. So, I mean, what's really interesting, what has always been interesting to me, I, I, as an undergraduate, I wrote a thesis on divorce law reform. And the reason that I wrote the thesis, that thesis was that I was interested in, so this actually goes to the question about liberalism. So, you know, I was introduced to this idea of classical liberalism, um, and as as a kind of the roots of certain very um, pervasive ideas in the way that the um, American or the government of the United States is shaped, right? right. And the, I, the basic idea is, the basic idea, so this is John Locke, John Stuart Mill in certain moods, um, James Madison, Etc. And our constitution is in very in many ways um, a liberal document. And the key ideas, some of the key ideas are, um, you know, the priority of the individual, uh, limited government, government limited by the consent and the um, the limit, limited government. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and. Related to that, a separation, um, a, some sort of separation between church and state, um, and sort of fundamental to this uh, tradition of thinking about politics is, is a claim that um, the way that you that a diverse people, people with deeply different ideas about 
you know, the good or God um, can live together in a political community peacefully is by separating public and private life. So in private, you can do more or less what you want, and in public, but in public, you have to, um, you know, you have to follow uh, shared political commitments. And civil law, yeah, yeah. Right. And what's interesting about marriage is that it obviously totally and repeatedly crosses the boundary between public and private yes, life. Yes, it does, yeah. In so many ways. And so, you know, my as a kind of, but both as an undergraduate and then later as a graduate student, I was really interested in how liberals did, how they had dealt with this institution and how they could deal with it. And, you know, at the time when I was an undergraduate, the big debates, um, the big sort of public debates about marriage had to do with divorce law reform. And um, so that was actually what got me, you know, that was the sort of initial uh, interest. And I was also, uh, I studied under Susan Oaken, and so I was really interested in, you know, how questions of gender and inequality fit in. And of course, feminists have long been interested in marriage as a an institution that perpetuated uh, sex inequality. So, the, you know, so those um, constellation of right. interests got me to start thinking about this. And, and you know, the same-sex marriage debate, people, I'm often asked to, to comment on the same-sex marriage yeah, debate. Yeah, I had a question about that. About. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, I I have thoughts about it, and of course, I know a good deal about it, but, but it was not the, at all, the motivation, the original motivation of this project. And, and you know, for me, a kind of, um, something that made me feel like, ah, oh, actually, I, you know, that there's actually something worth thinking about in this book that I've written, um, was that right toward the end of writing it, the, um, one of the big California cases was decided, and I realized that I really, the framework that I had developed in the book really helped me understand the decision um, in, a, in a different way than was being kind of discussed generally. So, uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, it does. That's very much. I got so. interested. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you you say and you said already you, you spoke a little bit about you know the public-private distinction and I know that you 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 recognize the critique to that. I have questions about that yeah. too. But be, before that, uh, you, you know, you make the claim that marriage is analogous to religion, and and I just want yeah. you could you please elaborate on that claim a little bit? In what sense is marriage somewhat like religion? Yeah, great. Well, so and I appreciate that. I often get people often read it and say, "Oh, you're saying that marriage is religious, um, or it is a religious institution." And that's definitely not my claim. No, it so, isn't. of course, yeah. it is in many ways, in many instances, a kind of religious institution. But um, so the the argument there really came out of noticing that liberals would repeatedly, uh, so the the theorists that I looked at to kind of think about how liberals had dealt with marriage and, you know, in the past, um, I looked at, uh, or I look in the book at uh, John Locke and John Stuart Mill and Susan Oaken, yes. um, and then I also look at the, Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court. And what I noticed was that they would sort of, they would, on the one hand, they say, oh, well, we need to treat marriage as an 
inst- as, a, as a sort of a contract between two free and equal individuals and um, very much like a property contract. And it was, um, they, you know, on the one hand, they would be very comfortable or, you know, and for Locke, of course, it was radical to sort of describe marriage in these terms. Um, speaking about marriage in contractual terms. And then at the kind of at the last minute, they would make a number of assumptions that that would distinguish marriage from or without explanation, they would sort of treat marriage, the marriage contract differently than the property contract. And so, and I try to, you know, I sort of look around and say, well, why do they have any good explanations on their own terms for why that why it's different? Mm. And um, mostly they didn't. They don't, I think. And so I used Hegel, who I think for all of his, what I think of as um, disagreeable characteristics <laughs> of his thought, has a, this really, what I think is a really compelling and... Um, Compelling because it's 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 a good it's a good empirical description of the thing that I think many liberals assume marriage is but don't articulate it in the detail that he does and so his argument is and this is this will begin to explain why I think of marriage um, as akin to religion his claim is that marriage is a contract to transcend contract. What does he mean by that? Well, basically, you know, he, he accepts the modern position that um, marriage, ne- you know, needs to start in a contract between two free and equal individuals because they are free and equal, and they need, you know, that's that's one expression of their freedom. But to get stuck there, he thinks, you know, is disaster in his world. And the way that the way that marriage transcends that is by in invoking or inviting in um, marriage is the institutional mechanism by which a public authority and in his mind it's the state and in his mind the state is what he calls an ethical authority which is to say an authority that citizens don't experience its commands merely as limiting like we might say we experience the liberal state, when it says you need to stop at the stop sign, it's it's we experience it as limiting. I mean, basically, yeah, we would like to, you know, we understand that it's for our better, um, it's it's for our long term good or immediate good, but really, you know, it's a limit. We have to stop at the stop sign. Well, Hegel has this idea that that citizens can come to experience the state not as limiting, but rather first and foremost as um, freedom generating. So that's an ethical authority for him. And the idea is that it it alters the way that the citizen understands themselves vis-a-vis other citizens and vis-a-vis the state in a fundamental way, right? Their freedom is totally tied up in everyone's individual freedom is tied up with other individual citizens in the state. So his claim is that when the state confers marital status on a uh, couple, it the the aim and the the function is to to change the way that those that couple understands themselves vis-a-vis each other and vis-a-vis the rest of the community, and that it 
elevates them. It helps them, you know, move beyond the moment, the original moment of um, a contractual relationship to each other. Long story short, my my claim is that there's something like that going on when when um, you know in public discourse, there's a dis- people. I think plausibly make the claim that there's a difference between marriage and civil union. And but the question is always, what's the difference? And I think that Hegel nicely captures what the difference is, which is to say that behind whatever, you know, secular, liberal rhetoric that most, say, Americans use when they're talking about marriage, or many use when they're talking about marriage in public debates, they, they have this idea that marriage, and literally the title marriage, has a, has a kind of ethical force that um, has, can have the effect of transforming the way that people understand themselves from the inside out, vis-a-vis each other and the rest of the community. Right. And that, to me, is in our, in kind of liberal terms, much more like religious authority than political authority. Therefore, long, long way of saying that's sorry. That's why I think that's why I think that marriage is like religion because it depends on this ethical authority. Yes. Um. So. So there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you 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 say that the state the state's involvement in regulating marriage actually harms a liberal society. It 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 is an impediment to the freedom and equality that we just were talking about. In what in what yeah. ways? In what ways does this actually work out? Like, how does it harm a liberal state, a liberal society? Okay. So, um, well, I think it, okay, we can talk about a couple of things. One is, how does it get in the way of freedom? Well, I think it gets in the way of freedom um, because when the state is conferring marital status, because um, for one, it, um, it puts the state in a position that is of an ethical authority, which is to say that it um, asks the state to sort of function and sort of positions the state to function as um, a a power that, an authority that will um, issue commands that are aimed at changing us from the inside out, and which is to say our beliefs and our feelings and our, our, yeah, our beliefs and our feelings. And one of the reasons that liberals have always wanted to distinguish between political and religious authority is precisely that the notion that um, the state political authority, of course, in some sense, it's going to affect the way that we think, but we want it to affect we being a certain kind of liberal want it right. to affect the way that we think as little as little as possible so that that you know we have as much a range of kind of um, a, the greatest range possible of the freedom of belief of conscience. Um, uh, so, so that's the first way that that when you when the state is functioning as an ethical authority, which I think it is doing when it's doling out marriage marital status, yes. it's actually working on our deep. It's aiming to trying to work on our deep self understandings. Um, in areas that it needn't do so. Right. It is actually uh, offering a conception of the good, as it were. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and you know the thing is, I think that this the state is always in some sense offering a conception yes, of the good, but it, what it's doing here is it's going deeper and further than it needs to. Right. So that's that's one. And then the other, I mean, is just a very simple like. There are people who, if they say that they're married, they'll end up in jail in this country, right. which is to say polygamists, right? Yeah. Um, so that's another way that it limits freedom. Um, and I, the, and it li- also, that's another way that it, you could argue that it limits equality. I think the more important way that it limits equality has to do with when the state is um, funneling its benefits for families through marriage, it excludes a huge and increasingly large range of, of um, people who are engaged in family work or intimate caregiving. And so um, it undermines gender equality because often it's um, women who are doing that labor. Right. It, it undermines equality among families. Um, so those are some of the ways that I think using marriage, uh, the establishment of marriage affects right. freedom and equality. It, but why, why did the liberal state first get involved in this, in the, in the business of regulating marriage? When did this, why did this happen? Uh, well, so, I mean, I think historically it, you know, it's a question of, um, marriage was the way that the church was, um, the church and um, was regu- was regulating private or family life, right. um, and or the churches were. And when you know, in 17th century England, the um, liberal state sort of started to its beginnings began. Um, it essentially took took over this institution, you know, eventually slowly took over this institution. Right. And um, because the state served as the community, you know, the, essentially the community, the most, to use Hegel's term, universal community, um, it was n- quite naturally interested in ways of controlling and supporting private life or family life. Um, so it just took over the mechanism that the, the church had used, and that, w- and and frankly, that you know people were using themselves, and they were looking, people were looking for recognition from the authority of, um, you know, the most, the more most important or powerful authority. Um, so I should say historically, that's why it happened. Um, my suggestion is that it just that that in in essence, that the arrangement that we currently have is, is in a sense, uh, um, a vestige of, you know, an older time that that is not consistent with our principles. Precisely, yeah. Uh, yeah. Tamara, I, I I know that you you recognize the critique to the to the claim that there is a distinction between the public and the private, and yet yes. and yet you are uh, you are. Um, you know, you want to preserve the distinction somewhat because you do think it matters. Yeah. You do think it matters that it actually protects people uh, to preserve this distinction. Yeah. And so this was this is a tension I I I, I yeah. find in, in in the book and yeah. the work. And could you speak a little bit about that? How difficult was it to negotiate these 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 difficulties? 
So, yeah, uh, yes, I do very much uh, recognize and accept many of the critiques of um, the, n- the notion that there is, um, that it's plausible to make a distinction between public and private um, life, life spheres. Um, I mean, as I said, my, in some sense, my grounding in as a political theorist is very much in feminist yes. um, political theory. So um, I completely accept the argument that um, they that that uh, public and private life inter affect each other, that um, what happens in one certainly influences what happens in the other, um, and that it's, that what counts as public and private is always contested and always changing. Um, but, uh, and, 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 and that, that bolstering or kind of claiming that there's a distinction can be downright dangerous to the, you know, to people in, um, especially in the private sphere. And um, I am also, you know, I'm, I guess at the end of the day, um, the difference between uh, life in my home and life you know, what I do at the grocery store, even right. what I do, certainly what I do in the voting booth, those just that it's the differences are different enough and real enough and important enough, in my view, to, to um, warrant uh, a can warrant, call, you know, notice calling them dis- distinguishing them conceptually um, and not just, you know, as a descriptive matter, but, but also as a normative matter saying that we need to, we need to constantly be vigilant about the areas um, of our lives that we want the state to be actively um, and openly engaged in and the parts of our lives that um, we don't want the state right. to be actively and openly engaged in it. And of course, if it's inactive, it, I mean, if it's it's acting on those parts of our lives um, behind a veil of not being there, right. the job of one of the jobs of a political theorist, myself included, and I think I do this in the book and I certainly do it in other parts of my work, is to say, hey, actually don't, you know, the state is operating over here. Don't be fooled. But just by pointing out that it is operating over here doesn't mean that it, that it has to. So, you know, a great example of this is anti-sodomy laws. Right. You know, I, I think that the argument that the police should not be allowed to come into a private home and, you know, arrest me for having sex with, you know, well, not me, but yeah, um, but one, yeah, two men, yeah. Whatever I'm doing is is um, it it makes that is a really good example to me of of where um, the public 
privacy distinction is plausible and useful. And um, at the same time, I recognize that I also want the state, I also want to be able to say as a married woman, if I were married to a man, be able to, or forget it, a woman, if I were married to her, I would want to be able to, um, you know, go to the state if I were being, say, physically abused and use the state in my defense against this person. So I recognize that the, that the, um, that the public-private boundary is, as I said, it's contested, it's yes. per, it, it is and it ought to be permeable. It's something that we should be constantly critically aware of, you know, what is going on, how is it being used, what's, how is it being used to exclude, how is it used to, to hide. But also I think all the while it's a, it's a, it's a great, um, that is to say it's both plausible and it's useful tool for um, not becoming a big um, blob of, uh, you know, citizens controlled by the state or, frankly, controlled by, well, let's just say by the state. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, I, I would like to speak a little bit about some concrete examples of how the state does this. And I know that you talk about let's say in the case of um, let's say welfare recipients in the post 1996 mm -hmm. era that's one that was that's one case of intrusion by the state on, on uh, yep. about how the state tries to construct a notion of the ideal family an ideal uh, sort of sexually intimate relationship and so on another example yep. you have is of uh, i think it's tom green and plural marriage in utah and how even yep contracting parties who do not want to be recognized by the state as a married, uh, not, I don't want to say couple, but a married set of individuals, the state mm -hmm. imposes itself. And so could you speak a little bit about some of these concrete cases uh, mm -hmm. and how the state actually is uh, absolutely intrusive, imposing its idea of marriage onto individuals? Right. Okay. Well, um, so on the, on the welfare case, I mean, one of the things that the Bush administration um, did was it uh, essentially gave uh, it, it introduced um, marriage promotion as part of its welfare policy, which is which is to say that it it actively it you know created um, programs that actively promoted uh, monogamous heterosexual um, marriage as a kind of uh, a mechanism for uh, um, I mean, if you wanted to get uh, certain welfare benefits, being married was an advantage, uh, and and not so that was one. And and then just sort of putting a material and and social or legal um, uh, goods toward promoting marriage as a this particular kind of marriage as a way to deal with. Um, general public welfare concerns. So that so that's one example. Um and, and, and on the flip side, um one of the ways that welfare um has well that's, that's one example. Um the polygamous or the plural marriage example, um so Tom Green uh was a um religious, an Orthodox Mormon or a fundamentalist Mormon 
he um, married a number of women in religious ceremonies, and they very carefully uh, did not... Um, he married his, I think, the first wife legally, and then I think um, he actually he very carefully. I think he may even have divorced her legally at one point. So he was, um, but in any case, all of the other women that he entered into religious marriages with, you know, distinctly didn't make claims on, say, their tax forms about being married. It was entirely a uh, religious, um, you know, arrangement. And yet um, the state in a kind of, it was right before the Olympics, the Winter Olympics went to Utah, and there, was a, there were a bunch of um, cases where Utah sort of was going after, aggressively going after polygamists. And so Tom Green ended up, I don't know if he actually served the five years, but he ended up... Um, with a five-year sentence for um, for polygamy, right? It's, uh, Even though he, in none of it, in none of the case, in none of the, um, you know, he was only legally married to one person. So, um, yeah. So that's that's the the polygamy example. And then, you know, of course, there's the um, example of same-sex marriage, and you know how. I mean. Yes. I could go on about that. Right, right I know. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I do have questions about that, but I, uh, but more centrally, I think I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the idea of caregiving, and I know that you, uh, you, you speak of how caregiving is is central to marriage, and uh, other people have written about how sexual intimacy is not integral to marriage. Like asexual people can get married. Uh, people yeah. in prison can get married, like, you know, people who are not sexually active yeah. or who cannot have children, they can get yeah. married. Why, why, what, what made you pin down caregiving as the central feature of marriage, like something that is necessary across marriage? Yeah, so I don't think, I, I actually have, the only claim that I make about as a kind of central feature of marriage, and for what it's worth, I mean, I, I, I qualify when I say you know, a central feature of marriage. I'm talking about marriage that dominated the Western tradition since right. the 17th century. Um, and Western tradition is in quotes. I recognize that there are lots of problems with using even the concept. But um, yeah. so, the, and the claim that I make is is actually has not to do with caregiving with respect to marriage. The claim that is that I make that uh, is that marriage is unique in that it um, has, it's an avenue through which um, ethical authority, you know, conveys a thick normative account of this kind of relationship, so the internal workings of it and its relationship to the community. That's the claim that I make about marriage. Right. My, my claim about caregiving is that as a matter of fact, Lot, it frequently happens in marriages, um, and that um, lots of caregiving in the U.S. Um, happens in marital families. Um, but most importantly, that caregiving is the the thing that happens in marriage 
that with which the state, the liberal state, really needs to be concerned. It's the it's the you know the kind of the the dis, distinct activity that happens in marital families that um, that there's a very good argument. I mean, there's also, of course, an argument that the state needs to be involved in property arrangements. Exactly, that's what I was thinking. Lots of people yeah, have. Yeah. People, people have already made that, and that I don't. I don't feel like I need to make that argument. I mean, it's clear that if there are property, you know, agreements going on, um, the state should be somehow involved in um, regulating those. And similarly, if you know, there is, the state is always concerned with physical harm, no matter where it's yep. happening. Um, the, so, and for what it's worth, like. I don't think that uh, an intimate caregiving union needs to have sex anywhere in it. It could be, you know, it could be um, two, or it could be three asexually, you know, celibate adults right. and um, their adopted children. That would be, if they wanted to enter into an intimate caregiving union, um, if they were, that would be fine with me, right. I think, because I think intimate caregiving is stuff I care about can totally happen in those groups. Um, so I don't know if that. Um, yeah, it does. It, uh, it could. It could also be between an ailing person and her, let's say, caregiver, a nanny or something. You would be okay absolutely. with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I, I want to move on a little bit to a methodological question, Tamara, and I. Okay. And and and. You know, you talk about the intimate caregiving uh, union status, and you say that this is this is something that will uh, is a way of uh, ensuring that no harm is done to any one of the contracting parties, like abandonment, like physical violence, like property, yeah. and all the rest of it. Uh, this is something I, um, you know, you say that your work is normative and yet not uncritical. I find this really interesting because a lot of critical mm. theorists will. Um, end their work at the point at which they have finished their critique and they don't offer yep. a solution or something normative and so on. But you yep. do. You don't leave it at the deconstruction of this and you actually offer more. You say that this, uh, this intimate caregiving union status is a way of, of combating some of the problems that present themselves when this happens. And so at, yep. how did you, what, what inspired you to do this and not the, the other one? Like, why did you decide to do normative theory as opposed to just uh, critical theory? Like, were there critical methodological theory. options you faced and was there resistance? Was there tension? How did you decide what, 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 what made you do? Yeah, well, it, that's a, I really appreciate that question. I mean, um, I would say that okay. I struggled the these what you're calling methodological questions were for me in in some way the hardest part of writing this book yes. because um you know i i started i be because i think as a you know i'm i'm very roughly speaking i mean i obviously, i obviously have these deep roots in liberal feminism right. and liberal feminism liberal feminist theory is is very it's like beset with this this tension between on the one hand being deeply critical and at the same time um wanting to make you know normative and prescriptive um claims and i and um let's see I, 
I, I really appreciate the critical theorist's claim, and I also think of the kind of, I think of people like, um, I mean, I think there are a lot of, well, I think critical theorists, so here I'm thinking of things that Wendy Brown has written, and but I also think people like Leo Strauss make claims that to me are very compelling, which is that in a way, the or the political theorist or political philosopher um, actually needs to not get too um, wrapped up in day-to-day politics. Right. That the whole point of being a political theorist, political philosopher, is kind of be many steps away from it, so that we can be critical of the the you know contemporary politics. Um, and the other danger is, and this is more the critical theorist concern, that as a political philosopher, political theorist, you you wield um, a kind of language and authority in our society that give, is going to give weight and a kind of aura to what you say that isn't Gonna, it's not gonna. It's gonna make what you say not be treated as a just kind of an argument about, you know, how you think things should be, right. but rather a kind of truth from on high. And I'm really compelled by those arguments. At the same time, I I just don't. To me, being a political theorist and not being paying attention to what's actually going on in my political world and like commenting on it, I just it, it's part of what motivates me that I can comment on the political world that I live in. And the practice, uh, yeah. And the practice, yeah, the practice, exactly. And uh-huh. frankly, I think that it, one of the things that sort of, as much as I'm like compelled by the critical and the, you know, political philosopher's argument, um, I find them kind of disingenuous <laughs> because I think at the end of the day, they t- they they actually do have and take uh, normative positions yes, in their political theory. I think, and I and I, I don't know. I just you know I want them to kind of come out and admit it. And third, the third thing I would say is that you know, like I very much present this work as a kind of in a sense, as a, a set of hypotheses, like as some arguments to be considered. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're too, you know, on high. I think they're arguments, and I know there are problems with them. I mean, geez, we could, you know, spend the next hour talking about all the problems with the argument, but, um, but I expect, I don't expect that to be treated as, you know, the sayer, the, you know, purveyor of truth. I'm... Right. I'm I'm making an argument, and I'm hoping that uh, you know people will engage it. Oh, it uh, how how do you how different do you think your proposition of an intimate caregiving union status is is from let's say um, uh, the the French civil union, let's say the Pact or or the Canadian uh, law? What is it beyond conjugality and supporting close personal uh, adult relationships? I think is what they're called. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do, yeah. how different do you think they are, or are these things all they all share sam- family resemblances, or what what do you what do you say to that? Um, I think they 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 share family resemblances for sure, um, and I mean I think um, that maybe uh, 
um, a, a way to think about this that might be especially helpful for an American audience is, you know, the question of, well, how would civil union be similar or, and or different from marriage as we currently, um, as marriage is currently sort of arranged um, as a legal category? And the answer is, in some ways, uh, it civil, an intimate caregiving union would be a, look a lot like marriage. Um, it would be a voluntary, you would, you know, assume it uh, as a voluntary matter. Um, you would have to be of a certain age. Uh, it would come with many of the same benefits and burdens that come with marriage, legal marriage today. Um, ways that I think it ought to be, change, you know, different. Um, I think it should be available to much wider range of um, units. Right. Um, so I've already said, like, I'm definitely not opposed to three celibate adults right. and their adopted children. I'm also not opposed to Tom Green. If he he and his five wives want to get, some, you know, intimate caregiving status, that's great. Yeah. Um, uh, and... Um, the the status would be focused narrowly on the task of recognizing and supporting intimate caregiving. So um, I'm, you know, I wouldn't, for instance, um, re I don't think that it makes sense um, to have um, monogamy be a necessary feature of this status. Right. Now, if people wanted to write that in or if, you know, wanted to do that in their own lives, that's fine. But I just, I, it's not obvious to me that that's an essential part of a good intimate caregiving union. Right. Um, what, 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 and, sorry. And the, the one last thing I would say is that I actually think that the, that taking the title, the label marriage out of our law, out of our legal system, you know, not having it be a status that the state confers, um, I think that that would be would make a huge difference in the in the content of the discourse and the content of the policies. And um, I think the best evidence for that is the amount of energy and ink that has been you know spilled and spewed um, over the question of whether you know, these various civil unions that are available in around the United States for gay and lesbian couples, why we don't call those marriage. Right. You know, it's obvious that, that the term means carries a lot of extra, you know, significance. And I think if we took it out of our legal and political discourse, we would be much better off. Yeah, this actually, when I cut you off, was my question. This It's amazing to me that... that your position, which is um, uh, actually uh, circumvents the problem of those people who want to be against same-sex marriage and rely on the argument that uh, that there is a there is actually a definition of marriage which does not need to be changed, and they will actually be okay with what you're saying because you're not talking about marriage at all in this intimate caregiving union state. So my yeah. my question then is that what kind of reaction have you faced from let's say pro-same-sex pro marriage advocates, do they think that you're actually hostile to their 
to their politics, to their rights, and all the rest of it? Or what, what happens? This, this to me is... Yeah, so that's... A, that's uh, it's been really interesting. I mean, I sort of realized early on, my, my sister is a um, very active um, in the... Um, she says she's she's a, an attorney, and she she says she um, um, does property arrangements for um, the gays. She puts, <laughs> um, and uh, she's a very active supporter of same-sex marriage. And um, so we have long we've long been having a conversation about this. And and um, you know she, she well, and I often you know I'm. I am very, I'm also very supportive of, um, I'm very, I mean, it's, like, it's, it's absurd for me even to have to say this. Right. Like, I am very, very supportive of gay and lesbian rights. Like I'm, you know, I consider myself, you know, part of that community. And um, the, not surprisingly, the reaction um, that of my sister and um, you know other sort of gay and lesbian activists, same-sex marriage activists, is interesting. Thank you very much. I'm not, you know, I, this isn't. It's it's interesting. It maybe it makes sense, but I'm not. I'm not going to take you on board because right now I'm fighting for something that needs to happen first. And I totally agree. Like I, I actually. Um, when I speak to sort of general audiences, I, I make a, I'm very careful to say, um, you know, in the meantime, as long as we are doling out marriage, we need to dole it out to gay and lesbian couples because in every way that matters, you know, and this goes to what matters. Well, what I think matters is intimate caregiving. And, and, and also as long as we're doling it out, there's a kind of civil, and social recognition that comes with this label. And we, there is no good reason that we, you know, it shouldn't be also available to uh, gay and lesbian couples. What the, my, the, the thing that my sister really, really gets her, you know, she wants to kind of shut me up is when I say, well, I also think there's no good argument against polygamy. Yes, there isn't actually. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think the, I mean, the argument against polygamy, there is no good argument against recognizing polygamy. But except that there's a good argument against recognizing any marriage, I think legally. But otherwise, yeah. there's. I mean, so um, so yeah. I mean, predictably, the same-sex marriage, pro-same-sex marriage folks, even if they're sympathetic, and many of them are very sympathetic to the sort of the logic of my argument, um, aren't interested in me as an ally, which I totally appreciate. Um, and of course. Uh, on the other side, I, I have repeatedly had people um, who are pro-marriage advocates, and in quotes, um, Stephen Nock, who uh, was a, a scholar of marriage, passed away, a political theorist, conservative political theorist, passed away. Uh, maybe five years ago, but we were at a conference together, and um, we we were the two political theorists who had been invited to this conference on marriage. And um, you know, he he predictably said some one thing, and and the expectation was that you know he was going to give the liberal view, or the, sorry, the conservative view, and I was going to give the liberal view. And we flew home together on this little plane, and we started talking. And you know, he basically said, well. 
you know, as far as I can tell, I'm totally with you. I think I let's get the state out of marriage, you know, we're probably better for marriage. And so it's interesting. Uh-huh. I mean, I find myself in, you know, with sort of a strange set of bedfellows, although many, I would say most um, pro-marriage, again, in quotes, pro-marriage folks don't like my argument and um, more liberal folks are sort of quicker to say, yeah, that, you know, that makes sense. But Right. Do you, ever, do you ever face a resistance in the classroom when you're teaching this material, for instance? Do students ever say that, oh, we don't agree with this, that we want marriage, we like it? Um, yeah. I mean, yes. I think, yes. I, in fact, I often do. I was, um, I, I gave a talk at Dickinson College earlier this year, and um, which is, you know, Dickinson is a sort of a small liberal arts, you know, good liberal arts college, and um, so a lot of kids from the Northeast. Well, and and so you know they're kind of predictably probably slightly to the left, but mostly you know somewhere in the middle. And um, that what I often find in talks like that or in conversations like that is um, initial resistance to because they because the assumption is that I'm making the argument that we should get rid of marriage. Right. I'm not making the argument that we should get rid of marriage. I'm making the argument that we should get the state out of the business yes. of marriage. The same way that we that I think we rightly don't have the state involved in religion to the extent that we do. And of course, you know, to go back to the public-private question and, and the normative critical question, part of my job as a political theorist is to point out all the ways that we that actually the state is involved in religion or religion, you know, right. is, is um, involved. In, but I, what I find in these, um, when I give talks like this or in class, you know, initially there's resistance because they're afraid I'm arguing that we should get rid of marriage altogether or, or that we should, that the state should, you know, not be involved in protecting children or, you know, regulating property. Right. So there's a misunderstanding of what you're actually saying. Yeah. 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 And but once I clarify it, I frankly once I clarify it, um, I would say the best the best arguments um, against my position are arguments about um, worries about or the ones that that don't change. You know, people who don't change their positions are either people who really who sort of have a Hegelian view of things, which is you know the state is the most important authority and it should actually you yeah. Know, it does and it should affect us from the inside out and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and then the other argument is a kind of, you know, strong secularist argument and and the worry that um, that I'm my my prediction that marriage would flourish the way that religion flourishes in the U.S. Um, is true and troubling. Yeah. Right, because it um, it would turn you know it, it, all these uh, on this secularist view you know all these crazy religious people would sort of marriage would be taken over by extreme re- religious views and um, you know I so and, and my response to that is you know it's not I do think that it would flourish in the, in a way that's similar to the way that religion flourishes in this country but. Um, for better or I worse, yeah, think, yeah. For better or worse, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I also, yeah, and I also think that 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 you know, religion in this country is a kind of moderate kind of. Re- well, <laughs> that's absurd. 
uh, it, it, it takes many, many, many forms yeah. and many of the most moderate sorts of versions of various religions appear and flourish in the U.S. Right. And so I think that's a good thing. Yeah. So. Well, uh, Tamara, we're running out of time, but I just have two, two questions. One is actually a serious mm. question, and the other one is a slightly mm. more flippant question. I want to end with that. Mm. But before that, mm. uh, some, some queer theorists make the argument that marriage itself is a form of cultural imperialism, that it, it marginalizes people who want to remain single, people who are polyamorous, yes. and so on and so forth. What is your opinion yes. on that position? Is marriage, do you think, is, is, is marriage a form of cultural imperialism that imposes its normalizing standards on, and I'm not talking about heterosexual marriage only, I'm talking about marriage in general. Do you think it normalizes its sort of... Yes, I, I agree with that. I think that it does, and I think um, the question, the next question is, do I think that's a good thing or a bad thing? And I think, um, I think it's, it has its virtues and its vices, and I, I guess my, you know, my, um, you know, my final, my final sort of position on that, or is something like, it's a little bit like the public-private. My take on the public-private right. thing, I think that that I think that social institutions, normalizing social institutions, are unavoidable. Yeah, and. I think that the job of the critical theorist or the political theorist is to is to constantly be criticizing the institutions that we have, and so we're not we're never going to have you know institutions that do, that don't normalize. We're never going to be without institutions, and they're always the institutions will always normalize. Yeah. And our job, my job, your job is to constantly be criticizing right. this. So I agree with queer theorists, and I think what queer theorists do is great. I, I love their work on marriage. I think it's totally compelling. And persuasive, yeah. Um, Tamara, I will, I will, I will end yeah. with this last question. It's a somewhat flippant, but uh, do, you, do you ever get, ever get invited to go to a wedding? Oh, yes. I've been invited to go to weddings. I've been asked, you know, on the air whether I'm married. Oh, I my mean, God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's funny. Um, Yes, I do get asked to go to weddings, and, though. And in fact, I often, I often get asked, you know, specifically because I'm of what I work on, to like say something about marriage. And I think to myself, well, okay, what can I say? You know, you are now binding yourself to the state. Right. Congratulations. That's great. You, know? <laughs> you know, the next time this happens, you should bring this podcast along and play it. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I will. Well, it's been a, it's been a pleasure great. talking to you today, Tamara, and thank you very, very much for joining us. I wish you the very best with your book and your career. <laughs> thank you, Cyril. Thank you for this. Has been a really delightful conversation. I appreciate it. All right. It. Goodbye for now. All right. Take you care. See. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to Tamara Metz, assistant professor of political science at Reed College, talking about her recent book, Untying the Knot marriage, the state, and the case for their divorce. Thanks very much for listening, and I do hope you will tune in again very soon. I'm Cyril Ghosh, the host of New Books in Political Science, and I'm signing off for now. Here's wishing you a great week.